Hello there, it's Gina Gardner here and welcome to Thriving Not Surviving. Today I am joined by a very, very special guest and I'm extremely excited. Samantha Lazelle is a great friend and she's someone that I've wanted to come on the show and I'm really thrilled to have you here today. So thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. Our pleasure. Now, I'm going to, as always, read the bio because I don't want to miss any of the real juice in the, in the bio because it's a really interesting one. Samantha Lazelle is an experienced yoga teacher and yoga studio owner. She also teaches not only yoga, but teaches people to teach yoga. She's well known for her calming vibe and advocacy of self-compassion as a superpower. Samantha's journey of self-discovery through her personal adversity has blessed her with the ability to transmute difficulty and trauma into authentic love. Her powerful blend of yoga and meditation practices act as a catalyst for compassionate transformation in the lives of her students, and I can vouch for that. Samantha says, I strongly believe when we practice yoga, we're practicing self-compassion. Beginning our practice by sending loving kindness to ourselves softens our expectations on the mat and in this softening our inner critic quietens and we can begin to accept ourselves as the beautiful, unique and powerful beings that we truly are. That's a really powerful message and one that I'd like us to get into. Okay, so please share with us the journey. How did you get here? Well, um, thank you for, for inviting me onto the show. Um, it's really wonderful to be able to share something of my story. Um, so the journey to where I am now has been long and scenic. Um, there's been many uh, twists and turns and, and places where I wasn't quite sure where I was meant to be. Um, I've had several careers along the way none of which made sense cumulatively until I stand back now looking at um, the, the journey in, in the rearview mirror um, and it all makes a lot more sense. So when I left school, I suppose, is a good starting position or maybe even before then, I suppose, is probably a good place to start for my personal journey. Um, I grew up in a, a difficult household um, where there was a lot of um, difficulty in expressing emotions um, and, and giving yourself permission to be who you were. So it was uh, an abusive environment where a lot of the time I hid myself, my true nature, and, and, uh, and guarded it very carefully. Now, that later on became a habit which was difficult to break. So it took me a long time to get to a point where I realised the worth of, of my, uh, my true nature. Through all of this, I had made the decision very early on to love no matter what. That was sort of the, the, the kernel of truth. That I managed to shield, that I that I managed to keep hold of, in amongst all of the maelstrom of difficulty that was going on, um, was that love was the answer, and and I was very sure of that. Um, 
I don't know why, but that, that was the message that, that I had and that kept me going. So then as we fast forward towards time of leaving school and leaving home and lots of decisions that made no sense to me that I, I made, I went into a, an engineering apprenticeship. I ended up doing office work, um, all sorts of different careers. I worked in the city for quite a long time um, in the legal sector, working with um, big international law firms, providing um, operational support for them. Um, none of which speaks to what I do now. And it became clear to me at, at some point that what I was sharing in my personal life and what I was experiencing in my personal life of this loving kindness being the answer to people's situations. What I was, when I was one-on-one -on -one with people, when I was talking to people who I was managing, or I was talking to people in other companies, or I was talking to my friends, I was having these conversations and every time the thing that, that was the most useful to apply was loving kindness, was this idea that compassion, coming from a place of true compassion, um, that sort of motion towards wanting to help people, having empathy and then wanting to step into their shoes and understand their difficulties, was the answer to so many of the things I was experiencing. And so, although I had always practiced yoga on and off, and I'd done lots of other things as well, it became really present to me that yoga had something about it that kept drawing me back. And so I decided to spend some more time there. So although I was having some personal difficulties at the time, I decided to take a, an extended break from work and and dive into yoga and so when I took that journey and spent time really being with that and, and the initial part of it was to heal myself was to spend time looking at what was happening in my life looking at how to heal not only my own but my family's situation and how that would would expand and how what I learned I could help them with um, it became more and more clear to me that this was my path and that everything I'd learned up until that point was actually the preamble. And it had given me all of these skills that would enable me to reach a wider audience with, with what I had learned. And, and so I find myself here um, having practiced a lot of self-compassion to enable me to move past really difficult traumatic events in my life that I've seen other people really trapped within mm -hmm. um, and that can become so self-destructive and the trauma stays with you but stays very real and close to you whereas allowing and I have done a lot of work in and softening its grip on me and being able to move through it and past it and into something that never leaves it quite behind, but that is more skillful and helpful um, and gives me the space to, to be what I choose to be rather than be what the trauma informed. I hope that's a, 
an answer that helps. <laughs> I think, uh, I, and it is, and I think many people listening to this who have been through difficult childhoods, whether they were abusive or not, I think, you know, one of the things is that we all have a blueprint of how, how we should be loved when we're children. And for many people, whilst from the outside, it would not be seen as abusive. I'm not suggesting that I mean, yours was um, extremely so. But for many people, even what seems like an ordinary uh, childhood can feel out of sorts for them. And I wonder what advice have you got for people who, as adults, look back on their childhood and are struggling you know you talked about people being trapped and I know from the many people I've worked with that many people are trapped and they don't even talk about it for decades so they can't actually start to work on it and move on is there any advice you'd give people who are in that place hmm well everybody's situation can be so individual and as you say it can be that from the outside, a lot of the questions they're asking themselves is, what, what is, why do I think it was wrong? What, why didn't it give me what I needed? Why am I feeling that something isn't right, that I haven't had some sort of foundation that I, that I feel I need? And I, I suppose my, my general advice would be, it's never too late, too late to change how you're living. It's never too late to change your thought processes to begin that healing journey however long you've sat with what you're experiencing it's never too late to learn to be more skillful in handling it and to to make decisions that can really bring peace and true love for yourself because so often in these situations we blame ourselves for it because as children, we have that message that if I'm not being loved, it's because I'm unlovable. Yeah. And reprogramming ourselves to actually take that step of loving ourselves first uh, is, is probably the most, the, the, the first and the, and the most useful thing that, that I learned to do. And I'm so thankful that I, that that was a lesson that came up for me and really held me. And, and I practice it all the time. And anytime I feel, that my inner critic is becoming harsher I notice it because I've been doing that work for such a long time now I notice it quite quickly and it's always self-compassion self-love and that reminder so it's it's never too it's never too late to do the work thank you isn't it interesting how when we hear harsh words from someone else they're difficult to hear mm. but when they're harsh words to ourselves how they have so much more power to wound and destroy, don't they? Oh, definitely. Um, well, we know all our soft spots, don't we? Yes, we do. Indeed. We know all the we know all the places where it's going to wound, and 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 skillfully wound um, in ways that other people could never learn, yeah. uh, even if they'd spent thirty, forty years with us. Um, our inner critic is is always the most skillful at doing that. Um, but I've, I've learned over the time that when my inner critic is being particularly vocal mm -hmm. um, and, and not only vocal, but, but quite unkind, when something's happening that, that is, that's promoting that voice to a, to a prominent position, yeah. it's an indicator, it's a flag that something's not right. 
Now, it might have absolutely nothing to do with whatever's being spoken by my inner critic, but it is a signal that something's out of balance. So although listening to the actual words is very rarely helpful, um, the sentiment and the sense of urgency around it and that sense of energetic danger um, is useful as a barometer of actually what's balanced and what isn't balanced, I, I personally have found. And certainly I think that that feels right for me and for many of the people I've worked with too. I'd like to move on, if I may, in terms of initially you talked about yoga was something that really helped you heal you and how now you're using it to help other people. For those who are not, um, have never tried yoga, can you talk us through um, how how yoga can help what it is is it about this is as a a form of of self treatment self love mm, sure um well i think most of us um whether we've experienced yoga or not will have a perspective on what we think yoga is so we'll have that idea maybe we've seen some images um or maybe we've heard some sounds there might be some idea that it's about a pretzel shape or being able to stand on your head um, or, or, you know, some sort of Indian music or being able to levitate or whatever, yeah. whatever that sort of the word brings up for people. Um, that's very little to do with the yoga that I practice. Apart from me being connected to the source, I, I did um, train in India. Um, the yoga that I practice and teach is much more about delving into who you are. The asana, the postures, are, are one-eighth of the system of yoga overall. So there's a lot more to it than being able to put your foot behind your head. <laughs> um, and in fact, the, yeah, which is great, um, there's very few people that can do that. It wouldn't be a very widely useful system if it was all based around your ability to do that. So what yoga teaches us in whatever form we practice it, whether it's in a meditation or whether in a focused concentration, there's um, one of the eighth, uh, eighths of, of yoga is self-study. So really learning uh, about yourself. However we approach it, whichever limb of yoga we go down and we use, it's, it's having a conversation with yourself and enjoying the journey of it without the expectation that there will be a goal at the end of it. Mm -hmm. So if I give you one of the postures, for example, because that's usually what people connect with yoga, that's how they think of yoga. So say we have um, a posture, a one-legged balance. Yeah, say so it's a standing balance and it's on one leg. Well, to begin with, that might be quite challenging for people. And they may get disheartened if they try it. They can't stand on one leg. They're like, well, that's not for me. So the, the yogic approach would be, can you stand on two legs? You can. That's amazing. You're almost there. Yeah. So the journey of discovery, yeah, and then maybe putting weight onto one leg whilst keeping both feet on the floor. You know, are you able to do that? Amazing. You're almost there. And learning that actually along the way, there are, the journey is so important. As with any kind of spiritual work, any kind of work we, we do on ourselves that we participate in, we learn the most on the journey. The, the, the goal is to learn about yourself, not necessarily 
to be able to stand on one foot. So in, in, in having those experiences, can you transfer that into other areas of your life? So when something comes up that you, that's difficult for you, is your first response, I can't do it, that's not for me. Yeah. In which case, learning how to bring in some more resilience on the mat and learning, take, take it step by step, do the things you can, learn a little bit more about the next step, see if you can do that, can be transferred into many other places in our lives. So it's really life training. Yes. It, it's very little to do with the actual pose and more to do with your approach to the pose. It's a really interesting way of looking at it. And I have to say the first time I ever heard that as an approach and an understanding of the underpinning principles of yoga was when we spoke about it. And I think that would be very helpful for many people who you know, see somebody um, with their, he- their foot behind their head and think, you know, I can see a bad back and strained ligaments coming. And, and so I can't do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. What I'm interested in perhaps exploring is whilst you're doing that, is that the, one of the messages that, you, that comes through very strongly is self-compassion and mm-hmm. self-kindness. And, you know, I'm not very physical, as you know, I have real struggles uh, with my physicality. And yet the principles of what you teach in the meditations and so on really resonate and are really helpful. Um, And so it seems to me that this is applicable to anybody. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think people get put off by this idea that you have to be flexible to do yoga. Yeah. You have to already be a yogi to be able to do yoga. Well, that's almost impossible. Unless you've been a gymnast or a dancer, um, how would you possibly be able to to do that? I mean, we often talk, my business partner and I um, talk about, you know, the difference between a beginner and an intermediate yogi. What's the difference? You know, it's nothing to do with a pose. It's nothing to do with a particular level of practice. The easiest way to sum it up is if you are in a yoga class and everyone else around you is in a pose that you can't do today for whatever reason, that pose isn't accessible for you that day and you're okay with that, you're an intermediate yogi. Right. So it's it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, a lot of the teachings that, uh, that I... Uh, talk about our everything starts with your mindset your thoughts your approach to life your beliefs and it it, it's being mirrored here isn't it in terms of of yoga absolutely and I've I've taught people who have had strokes I used to teach in uh, a nursing home a convalescent home um, for stroke rehab and people who uh, were in in bed unable to get out of bed and we did group meditations we we did uh, pranayama breathing techniques and they would come by choice every week Mm. and what a beautiful way of being able to share yoga to say to them it it includes you you you're welcome here yeah this is also for you there's benefit here and and i know of people who work in all areas um, of healthcare, end of life care, um, you know, children's yoga, um, senior yoga, where the, the posture and that idea that we have of yoga 
maybe because of Instagram, you know, the, the, the yogi on one leg on top of a mountain is so far from, yeah. from what, from what our experience of yoga is. Um, it, it would be wonderful to, to have that be more buoyant in society for people to understand that it is an inclusive system and that anybody you know start where you are that's the most important thing accept where you are begin where you are there's always something that you can do and yoga gives you a path it gives you a system within which to work and so there is discipline and there is challenge within it but it's at your pace and with a guide there are many people who have walked that path before you of varying um, ways varying styles varying traditions varying abilities and so there's something in it for everybody I think that's and that brings me to a really um, exciting part in terms of your career and that you you uh, opened up same star yoga studio and you started to teach teachers and so yeah. to pass on the capacity to share this with others do you want to just give us brief a brief outline of that sure so uh, we are in the middle, actually, at the moment um, of our first program of teacher training. And um, it's been something that Faye um, Richies, who I run the studio with, and I have been wanting to do for, for quite some time um, to, to be able to give people that long, long container for exploration of themselves and and that's what our course is called um, exploration of the self and it's a little different from a lot of teacher training so a lot of teacher trainings um, you you have a particular style of yoga that you practice and that you you like and you want to become a teacher in that and so you go to an expert of that and then they teach you how to do what they do yeah yeah so quite simple you, you learn what to how to do what they do and then at the end of it you're qualified in that particular style and then you you go off and do that yeah and you um, go and start your own classes up with your exactly. own and then, then you do that and some people who are who are students of a particular style want to deepen their practice um, and they'll do the teacher training they might not become an, a teacher in it but it's it's that style it's, yep. it's that thing. whereas for Faye and I because we're both multi-style trained we are teacher training offers four different styles of yoga so our students experience all of those throughout the course so we teach the traditions that we are steeped in and connected to um, and, and out of that blend each of the students finds their own way mm -hmm. so each of the journeys will be unique depending on what resonates with them. I'm more of a, uh, my tradition is more Buddhist, um, whereas Faye's tradition is more Hindu. And so that comes through in the philosophy and the, the teachings. Um, and so as they move through the course, the trainees have the opportunity to explore what these things bring up for them. Okay. So if you're somebody who has always done very active yoga, and that's the kind of yoga you would like to teach, yes? And you're, you really enjoy that, the movement and the energy it creates. How much more challenging to sit in a class where you need to hold a pose for five minutes? Yeah. That's going to be bringing up some things for you that you would never have explored 
if you only stick to your style. But isn't that what people do all the time? They stick to what they know because it feels comfortable and safe. And there's the word, yes, (laughs) that word comfortable, very much. One of the big things about about yoga um, for me, um, and and over the years I have experienced very high levels of anxiety um, and and lived with um, OCD and um, have had a diagnosis of PTSD, which obviously brings up a lot of of, uh, of different modalities of, of feelings and, and anxieties. And, and what I have found is that yoga has taught me to be comfortable within the discomfort. The discomfort isn't going to go away. No. Yeah. yeah I'm going to feel anxious about things. That's my go-to emotion. Um, rather than trying to push it away, which is the instinct, I don't want it. I don't don't want to feel like this. And of course, then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and it becomes everything. Rather than pushing it away, the best advice I had from one of my meditation teachers was, how would it feel to put your arm around your anxiety? Rather than pushing it away, how would it feel? How would it feel different if you put your arm around your anxiety and and asked it to sit down with you and and talk to you as a friend? And it changed everything. I'm sure it did. It's a very powerful way to look at anxiety. Mm. And it's, your, um, your anxiety is a message. It's, it's right to say to you, I don't feel safe. Yes. Uh, and Absolutely. often that's a perception and not the reality. And when you sit down and talk with it, then you can help put things into perspective, can't you? But of course, it feels very uncomfortable to begin with. That discomfort is a big thing for people. And no one wants to be in the discomfort we do so many things in life to get ourselves get rid of that discomfort and I know I have also I was going to say to you often rather than getting rid of it what we do is bury it and rather like a dragon in a box the least sign that the lid is being opened and the dragon comes out and breathes fire and gets bigger and bigger because we're using all of that energy to keep it to keep it stuck i'm going to have to have you back on the show because we're running out of time and what i want to do before we finish is how can people find you and if they're not in the uk you know what are the things that you can you can share with them um because you have such a wealth of knowledge and and your energy is is truly inspiring well thank you gina um well people can visit our website which is samestaryoga.com And we are at the moment in this situation we find ourselves in uh, teaching online. So you can access our classes from anywhere in the world. Um, And we are carrying on with our with our group classes. We are teacher training program. Um, We have little spaces left, um, some little spaces left for October. Um, And we're hoping to offer components of that online next year. So for anybody who wants to to stay in touch with us, do subscribe to our newsletter um, and all of the news goes out on there. We have a Facebook page. We have an Instagram feed, all same style yoga. um, And it would be great to connect with you there um, and learn a little more about you um, wherever you are in the world and share some of this uh, compassion, this self-compassion and put more of that out into the world. We certainly need it. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And as I say, we'll have to have you back on the show, particularly when some of your developments come through for next year. Absolutely. 
Now, don't go away. Um, we've got a short break. And then after the break, we've got a genuine chat with Rachel and I. Um, and looking forward to seeing you then. So see you in a minute. Thank you. Imagine being a highly successful, enlightened leader who is in complete alignment with your best self, who makes a positive difference on a daily basis. Let me introduce Gina Gardner, an expert in developing transformational leadership with over 30 years of experience. Gina has developed a unique and unrivaled approach to help you step into your genuine power to become an enlightened leader. And when you do, amazing things happen. Go to enlightenedleadership.co or email Gina at Gina at genuinely-u.com. surviving with your host Gina Gardner. To lead others, you first need to be the best version of yourself and lead from a place of wholeness. Motivation, empowerment, leadership, personal and spiritual development are just a few of the topics you will hear on Thriving, Not Surviving. So sit back and enjoy the show with your host, Gina Gardner. Hello there, and welcome back. Now, you know in this part of the show that I'm joined by my good friend, Rachel Davidson, both of us international authors. Rachel, a great novelist. She has a trilogy. If you've not read it, I really recommend that you read it, Beyond the Veils. And all of my books and hers are available on Amazon and on my website. Now, it's interesting that I start off by talking about books because the theme today is about the power of words. It's a good one, isn't it? It's amazing, isn't it? What a difference our words make. So, First of all, the tone of our voice makes such a lot of difference. So, oh, thank you. Thank you for being on my other radio show yesterday. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for rubbing my nose in it that you've got a cup of tea and I haven't. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> tone makes all the difference. But yeah. really, we're going to dive into the power of the word itself. Yes, because in actual fact, as you've as you've said, the actual words you use are very, very tiny amount of the um, the communication, the passing of meaning in, in, when you have conversations, aren't they? Um, so much more is about the body language and the tone and, and the context and so on and so forth. But nevertheless, we're going to concentrate on on the words themselves. Yeah. 
So I want to explore with you, so our, our listeners and our watchers get a real understanding of when you use words mindfully rather than un- unconsciously, how they can have such a different power. Mm-hmm. Most of us don't think about the words that we use too much. Well, let's qualify that. When we are in a good mood and things are going well, we tend to think about what we're saying. But when we're triggered by something that has happened or something uh, somebody else has said, then we are often go into automatic responses and we use words. Very often it's in those times when the words are at their most challenging and potentially damaging. Mm-hmm. So when you're cross with your child or your partner and you turn around and talk, oh, you stupid thing mm-hmm. or horrible person mm-hmm. when you're attacking that person it's very different to using the words well that was a stupid thing to do and i expect more of you or well i don't expect you to be horrid what's going on mm. so you attack the behavior and it's not the person so there are lots of situations where the adjustment of a word or two can make all the difference. This needs to be better. This needs to be even better. Mm. What does the difference in those two mean to you when I say those? Well, I mean, the first one is that uh, you're given the impression that uh, there's nothing good with it. It needs to be better. And in the second instance, the small addition of the word even means that you know it has some merits and it has if you add some further it'll be better <laughs> so um i mean you know if, as a as a writer well i don't have the ability to give any intonation or body language with the words i write um so you, you can get a little bit sort of you know tied up and twisted about uh, use of words and um in the moment of writing them but but generally speaking, going back and editing, you know, the selection of this word versus that word, you know, it's, it's such a difficult, you're always trying to strive for the, the quickest, most effective, most powerful way of getting across your meaning. And um, certainly in my earlier careers, I played around with lots of deliciously, you know, I was like a, a kid in a sweet shop, delicious words that um, aren't necessarily in in. Um, modern day parlance let's say and um, and I had a great deal of fun with that um, but as I have got more word weary so to speak um, as I have written more and more then um, slowly again I come back down to the power of just normal words really and how in combination with with those you know, around them you you can still make a very very powerful statement you know convey emotion convey all of the um, all of the necessary imagination that you want your reader to, to, to have with actually very few words. And I think that's an interesting part of the writing craft, really. Um, because, there, I mean, there are writers out there who are extremely poetic. Um, John Donoghue, for instance, I mean, you know, I, I think he's more poet than he is prose writer. Um, but nevertheless, his books are prose and, and they're beautiful. Um, but when you sort of, you know, when you sort of break it down, what he's actually doing, he's not, He's not using five-syllable words all the time. He, you know, it's his, it's his combination of the words. Um, the other thing I would say is that some people, um, and society in general, actually, they, they transfer the, word, the meaning of a word 
whether it be a good meaning or a bad meaning. So you and I are always talking about the word should. I feel very sorry for the word should. Oh. <laughs> it's not a bad word. <laughs> but in modern day, that because you know a lot of I don't know which which self help guru first said it, but um, but this new sort of thing of if you're saying I should to yourself, then it's probably the wrong thing. You know, you shouldn't say should. Oh, I shouldn't say should. <laughs> and and you know, if you look at the actual word itself, it's not that har- It's not harmful. No. But of course, we come back to this point that if you attach a particular meaning, if if the peer group you're in has that sort of definition of that word. That's what it now comes to mean. It's interesting because the word should, must, need. I often challenge clients when they're talking about something that they know that if they do whatever it is, or they be whatever we're talking about, that that's, that's, that they feel they ought, ought's another one, that they ought to. It's a, the difference between, you know, Eating a carrot is so much more healthy. Actually, what I really want is a donut. So I ought to, I should, I need to eat the carrot. Yeah. But what I really, really want is the donut. Yeah. But, I mean, as you, as you worked your language there, you, you started with the ought and the should, which is generally speaking, oh, looked down upon, you know. And then you move to, I need to. Well, that's not generally looked down upon, is it? But it has exactly the same meaning as ought and should. Exactly, you know, in the definition, you look it up in the dictionary. Again, it's, it's these fashions that come and go. Like crone is another good example of a word that um, has a very negative um, uh, meaning in, in today's world. In fact, you, you were in the same meeting as, as I a while back where the word crone was used. And the person using it meant it in its original honouring of uh, female elder, elderly female wisdom. And back in the day when you had a croning, it was a celebration. Okay, it wasn't a bad thing. And then the word has got slowly morphed for usually for sort of power and political reasons. So now if you're called a crone, you're, you're expected to be highly insulted by it. And indeed, one woman did stand up and start saying, you can't use the word crone. <laughs> Even though the person using it was trying to explain the very point I've just made, which is, you know, <laughs> these words are not bad. In fact, actually, what's bad about them is how um, society has taken it and, and used it against. And th- I mean, there are some really sort of dangerous words in, in our vocabulary that, I mean, you and I as white, white women, we couldn't use particular words and get away with it at all because we don't have the racial background. We don't have the economic background. Yeah. So it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in different parts of society at different times, certain words to describe other groups of people have yeah. been seen as perfectly acceptable. Yeah, and there are certain words that those and I just people call back. But I think they are acceptable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We need to make that very clear. But just in terms of how through time words change, the word nice um, initially used to mean silly. But I did not know that, Gina. It meant silly. It, initially, according to uh, the research that I've done, the mm-hmm. word nice meant that you were being silly. But now, nice 
it's a very, very bland word in terms of something that's slightly pleasant and almost dumbed down. But I suspect at one point it meant much more. But I think what you were talking about, particularly around the crone and you know, the listening to words, is two things. Firstly, what we say is not what necessarily what people hear. Mm. Yeah. And that one of the things that has struck me over the years is that I talk the language of Gina, you talk the language of Rachel. And because we know one another, we have come to an accommodation where we have a shared language, where we both understand one another because we know each other well. Mm. But I work with many clients who are in relationships either with a, their, their significant other mm-hmm. or boss, for example, where it's as if one person is talking bananas and the other person is talking grapefruit, mm-hmm. using the same words, but actually with a very different meaning. The language gets very complicated in the sense that what you say isn't what people hear, that we have different meanings and different values behind those words. And if you don't talk about that, then you assume that your blueprint for that word um, is the same as everybody else's. Mm. And it isn't. Mm. But also, it's the intention behind those words, isn't it? Mm. terms of your language to other people but also the language to yourself so i think you know when people are listening to this or watching this to to start to be really mindful Mm. about the language you use the other thing i want to pick up is the complexity of language and and how you used to love playing with 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 words which perhaps weren't in common usage um And I'm reminded when I was a principal of a school, I would get the school reports in and very often with young teachers, teachers who spoke perfectly normally, (laughs) their writing would become so convoluted and complicated Mm -hmm. that you, you couldn't find the meaning of it. And I'd say to them, why? Well, it's a report. It needs to be have gravitas <laughs> and getting across to them that simple means there's less opportunity for people to misinterpret to misunderstand yeah it's quite an interesting concept and it happens so frequently yeah and i think the same is true of you know governments and um of official language that they want it to sound important mm. they're very puffed up importance they make it almost unintelligible for people to understand that's why i love reading legal documents actually i mean love is probably too strong a word (laughs) but um uh, uh, because it's almost the opposite end of that in that legal documents are trying to be exactly clear and in trying to make it utterly clear what is and isn't included um in said contract or whatever um they often feel like you know, squiggly little mazes that you're you're chasing around the place and, and going back on yourself and whatever. But um and that always intrigues me, the 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 manner in which um a, a, a legal uh, document will be written and versus what a what a layman would do. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So sometimes complexity is mo- most definitely needed. Yes. Um, but well, generally speaking, yeah. 
if you're trying to get across a complex idea and to cover all your bases and make sure there's no loopholes, I can understand that. But I think, you know, we're, we're, we're reaching towards the end of our conversation today. I'd just like to recap for those of you listening. Be mindful about the words that you use and the intention behind them. Mm. And that remember that you've got two ears and one mouth for a very good reason. Mm. Check that what has landed is what you intended. That mm. if you're talking to people and you're being critical, then be mindful Criticise the behaviour, not the people. Mm. Because when you criticise the behaviour, then that's very wounding. And you are most likely to be your most critical um, uh, critic. That's not very good language, is it? That you're most likely to be the most critical of you. So be careful of the language that you use to yourself inside your head. Mm. Um, and I would say... I understood what you'd said, Gina. Right. <laughs> back that people do understand <laughs> uh, also recognize that the language that you use can make a difference every word that you use leaves a living legacy and you can choose whether that legacy is positive neutral or negative and so do it consciously mm. um, i'm not saying do it consciously to hurt please don't do that mm. uh, find a way that you can get your point across without um, having to be negative and detrimental to somebody well my mother always used to say if you haven't got anything nice to say probably best not to say anything at all so that option isn't there just don't say anything <laughs> so want to leave you with that please go and check our books out um rachel mm -hmm. novels um beyond the veil rachel davidson all of my books and there are many go onto Amazon, look for Gina Gardner and you will find them. You'll find them all on the website. genuinely-u.com. Thanks so much for joining us. We look forward to seeing you in the next uh, BBS show and genuine conversation. Bye-bye now. If you're a businesswoman, who is overwhelmed or suffering from imposter syndrome, who is tired of having one disastrous relationship after another, or who finds it hard just to say no. Well, it's time to take care of you. You get the best out of life by contacting Gina Gardner, relationship coach and best-selling author and motivational speaker. Just visit genuinely-u.com or you can email Gina directly at Gina at genuinely-u.com Take action now. Start to thrive rather than simply survive. <laughs>